Hello there. My name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. This episode comes from a live show we did on October 29th about the proposed polymet mine in northern Minnesota. We had two folks with different perspectives to talk about it. Our first guest was Kevin Lee, who is the program director and a senior staff attorney for the Minnesota Center of Environmental Advocacy. Our other guest was Isaac Orr, who is a policy fellow at Center of the American Experiment. It was a conversation that unearthed a lot of discussion, and like most policy issues, it's complicated. Our media sponsor for this season was MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find out more information at MinPost.com. Hi, everybody. So excited to have you both here. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, So... uh, I, I'm, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, we've, we've built this show around uh, a conversation around uh, mining in Minnesota, which has been a contentious topic for as long as I've lived here. Um, and I actually feel a, a personal connection to it in a lot of ways. I have a lot of family who lives uh, up on the, either on the Iron Range or near there and has for many generations, and um, and they're probably on both sides of this in some ways. So I wanted to just try and set the table this way by asking you both the same question, but I'll start with you, uh, Isaac, which is just so uh, the kind of question right now is will we allow more mining in, in Minnesota? So let's just pres- – if we didn't do that, what would happen? What would be the downside to not doing that, to just sort of staying the way things are? Uh, the problem with that is we have a really good opportunity to bolster Minnesota's economy while also developing these minerals responsibly. So our report found that $3.7 billion in annual economic output would be generated and 8,500 jobs would be supported. So we're all going to use these metals and minerals anyway. We all have phones. We all have tablets. Uh, we all use refrigeration. So uh, we are contributing to the demand for these minerals. Why not put our own people to work? Okay. That was very succinct. It's like you've done this before. I've so, done a few um, interviews. So, uh, well, let me ask you. So then, uh, okay, if we did do this, then what would be so? What would be the downside of that then? Well, the the risk is that when you, when these projects have happened in other places, what they usually do is they leave a very long legacy of pollution, that um, in the form of metals entering surface and groundwaters, and it's very frequently paid by. Um, public taxpayers. So that's the risk. Um, that's well, one risk. The other risk that we'd be talking about is a much more catastrophic event that we've seen a lot more uh, frequently uh, lately. I know this is not very funny. Huh, uh, no, that's, that's their job. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the problems that we see is that um, it's getting harder and harder to mine these minerals. And so the waste facilities for them is getting bigger and bigger. And they tend to um, fail. And what, when that happens, uh, if anyone's near there, they, they are, you know, they're literally their lives are at, are at risk. Um, so we're talking about pollution and, and protecting the communities that are near these facilities. So one of the pieces that I know, I, I've, I've read a lot of the things, you've both done a lot of interviews and talking about this in different places, is um, you're not sort of a blanket no on mining, right? And so you're talking about that there are all these risks. So I, I don't mean to sort of jump to the end point, but like what's, what's enough sort of protection or what's enough sort of uh, trying to figure out the protections that we would need in order to do this in the responsible way? Well, the question for us is, um, does this activity protect future generations? Um, so yes, we, we, we absolutely, these, this process provides minerals that we all use. Um, the question is, does it happen on the backs of clean water for future generations, uh, public liabilities for future generations? Does it so, necessarily? 
It, it does. There is no, there has never been a copper nickel mine in the U.S. that has not polluted. That's right. Has there ever been a copper nickel mine in the United States that has polluted? That has polluted? Has not polluted. Oh, I would say, yeah, I would say the Flambeau mine in Wisconsin. I would say the Eagle mine in Upper Michigan. We have the Stillwater mine in Montana. We have another mine that's being permitted in Michigan called the Back 40 mine. And there's a bunch of mines in Nevada and Arizona. So it, it kind of depends on what your definition of pollution is, right? Because, well, okay, so how many of you guys ride your bike to work everywhere? Yeah, one person. So there's benzene coming out of your tailpipe. So is that... Hey, well, let, let's... I'm just we saying. I'm going to just tell everybody, we're going to open it up for audience questions uh, in the second half of the show, and you all can ask questions then. We can save heckling for the show ends at 8.30. I mean, so, I'm used to hecklers, um, right? So, so, so that's like, okay. Let's, so let's just get... Um, so, I mean, he's mentioned it. So, like, help me... I, I just am trying to sort this out. So he says, like, these are clean minds. You said there just aren't any clean minds. What do I do other than drink this beer? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is the problem in this day and age that, you know... If anyone's interested, uh, you email me, and I'll show you the, the, the water quality violations from Flambeau, for example. Um, just to, you know... So the Eagle Mine, just to put a little context to this, the Eagle Mine is a mine that processes about 2,000 tons per day. Um, so the latest reports from the Polymat Project, which is the copper nickel mine that people most associate with this, because it's the furthest along, um, would process 118,000 tons per day. So it's about 60 times as large as that. Um, so, yeah, email me. I'll send you the, the water quality sampling outside of uh, Flambeau and Eagle Mine and then think about what that would look like if something is 60 times as large. Sure. I guess my question for that is which country should mine these minerals then? Which one's going to do it more efficiently and in a more environmentally responsible way than the United States? So we – oh, go ahead. I don't know. Who, oh, like, sure. Yeah. Uh, Chile? I don't know. <laughs> like, no, that's – The gloves a, are coming off, that's people. A, <laughs> yeah, we're, that's absolutely a great question. Um, there are mines worldwide that, that we work on. I mean, one of our goals is to make mining safer for everyone, you know. Um, and the thing is, you can't solve that problem of mining in the third world by opening up a, a mine here, right? I mean, can you imagine, imagine going to – so if you go to CAA's website, one of the, one of the mines they talk about is um, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where they mine a lot of cobalt. Um, there is a mine there called the Matanda Mine, uh, where not too long ago a pit wall collapsed and killed six people. Um, so imagine going there and saying, you know, we hear your, your concerns about, you know, working, workplace conditions and wage, wage exploitation, um, but, you know, rest easy because we're going to open a mine in Hoyt Lakes. You know, it, that, that to me, that would show them that, you're not actually caring about their experience, but trying to use their experience to advance a corporate agenda, frankly. Do you want to – well, do you want to – because I have a follow-up to that, but I want to yeah, give you yeah. a chance. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much – I don't know. You can perceive it that way if you want to, I guess. But people should know that the, the batteries in your phone, lithium-ion batteries, use a lot of cobalt. You either get that in Minnesota, which has the majority of the cobalt reserves in the United States – or 40,000 kids in the Congo mine for cobalt and wash it in the river. I think that I'm not trying to say that, oh, well, look at how bad that is. But it's saying 
acknowledge that these are the realistic alternatives that you're promoting by not supporting mining in Minnesota. So you both, though, it's interesting to me because you both, uh, in the things that you talk about and the things you've written previously, talk about, like, there needs to be environmental protections in order to, like, move some of this stuff forward, right? Like, I mean, okay. you've talked about that... Uh, part of the reason why mining here is acceptable is because it meets higher environmental standards than it potentially would in some of these other places, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so is it just a matter of then, like, what the levels of trying to figure that out are? And, like, is – again, I kind of go back to this question. How, do Are we just sort of arguing about, like, are we at a good level now? And if not, then what is the level of sort of protection and safeguards that we need for the environment in order to make this happen? Yeah, so one of the things that we work on is – uh, a program, a, a collaboration called the Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance. This is a collaboration between NGOs and governments and the industry to, with the goal of designing standards for mining safety and environmental quality that can be applied worldwide, right? So the goal is that eventually you'd be able to certify a mine as sort of responsible. Um, and that is what we see as, as really the goal here so that we can make mining safe all around the world rather than sort of compete with, you know, corporate actors like Glencore in a race to build the cheapest, most riskiest mine possible. So give me an example of, like, what's, like, a, a thing that... Because I think that you've written Minnesota right now, the, the standards that we have for building a new mine are outdated. or uh, they, They're based on old technology or old ways of... So what's something that we don't have written into law now that if you were going to be able to write sort of, like, the protections we would have? Sure. So one of the things that we've learned from when I talked about the distinctly non-hilarious catastrophes that have happened here, um, one of them was in British Columbia in two, 2014, and there have been a number of sort of legislative responses to that, um, uh, none of which we've adopted. So when you look at places around the world that have dealt with mining gone bad, essentially, places like Montana and British Columbia, they've enacted reforms where basically, um, you know, if you want to permit something there, the mine permit and the sort of mine design will be reviewed by a panel of mine engineers that are empowered to make changes to that. Um, that's something we don't do. Um, you see places uh, incentivizing alternatives to the uh, sort of unsafe ways of storing mine waste. So uh, basically the, the, the key problem with mining is that uh, the product, the waste product, is a slurry, and there's billions and billions of gallons of it. It's a very toxic, it's full, full of, you know, anything that was in the rock from arsenic to zinc is there. Um, and the question is, what do you do with that when you're done? And the cheapest way to, do with it, to deal with it is to pump it on the ground and leave it there forever. Um, that's what most mines do. That's what polymet would do. Um, there's other ways of, of doing that. So you can take the water out, you can filter it and treat it, and then what you're left with is, is a, essentially a landfill um, that you can then co cover and that becomes sort of part of the landscape over time. So there are ways of incentivizing kind of better ways of doing things that don't put those downstream communities at risk. They don't put the St. Louis River at risk, the, you know, places where people fish and wild rice and depend on that clean water. So. Why not just do all those things? So, well, let's talk about that. Um, the, the process for storing the tailings, which is really what we're talking about here, isn't like we just pump this over a farm field and say sayonara. Uh, these are lined pits. It's the same technology that we use for landfills. So in many ways, I would argue that our storage facilities are already uh, like landfills. Um, and we've been using this technology for a long time. The reason that the Mount Poly mine failed was because the regulators weren't keeping up with it. They didn't reinforce the structure with berms the way that they were supposed to. 
and you had a situation where the potential energy for a catastrophic failure in a mountainous region like British Columbia is going to be a lot higher than it is going to be in a flat region like Minnesota. So uh, there are site-specific geologic factors that you need to engineer for. Absolutely. Let's do it in the best way possible, but let's do it. Do you trust the U.S. regulators in order to, to take care of this and get it right? So the Minnesota, I don't know, process, I guess you could call it, for permitting a mine is very intensive. We've been looking at PolyMet for 14 years. We've had several rounds of public comment where people are able to say, hey, you know what? I think that this would be a better means of stacking the tailings or not. So everybody's had their chance. And to tailings, have just input. for folks who aren't following at home, tailings is like the residue, the leftovers. Yeah, so yeah. it's basically very fine, crushed up ore that's leftover that doesn't have the uh, desirable metals or minerals in it. So it's like a sandy substance uh, that can contain, you know, all the stuff that was in the rocks, like, uh, like Kevin said. So, uh, so you th- going back to the question though, in terms of the you the regulators, you feel like here are doing a good job. You would trust them to l- overlook this and prevent something like what happened in other places. Yeah. Yep. Do you? So, well, I'll give you an example. Um, so, when you're building um, a tailings dam, that you know, these, this slurry is held in place by a dam of, of rocks and soil. Um, slurry is just a bad yeah, word. No, Can yeah, we all agree? Like, no one ever <laughs> was happy about a slurry. <laughs> Slurpee. They are, on the yeah. other hand, when you're dealing with the Slurpee people, they are they are not, in fact, lined for the for the project that is actually has a design. There is no liner for the tailings basin, um, um, and so uh, if you. <laughs> There was something about a lining. uh, Yes. Yeah. You can't can't line a slurry facility. This is a facility that is three miles um, on a side, so about nine square miles. Um, It would not be lined for polymath. Um, What would the lining be made of? (laughs) So that would be like a clay or impermeable plastic material. This is something, just for a little bit of context, right? The idea here is that um, you protect the, the, the environment from contamination by taking these little pellets of bentonite clay and sprinkling them over the waste and hoping that that forms a barrier, okay? So when our state agency sent that plan out to consultants to say, hey, will this work, um, they described it as a Hail Mary. That's, you know, their quotes. That this is something that, again, at some point, the entire mass will unravel. Okay. So this is, you know, when the agency said, we need help finding out if this is a reasonable plan, that's what they said. So um, just, just I'll give one last example. Um, so one of the things that, that, that was done since some of these disasters happened was, like, Montana has a very specific standard that says your dam has to be X amount of safe, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a number that, that describes how close it is to collapsing. Um, we don't have anything like that. We just, we just treat it as we do every other water dam. We don't, ha- we don't treat it as what it is, which is an industrial waste facility. We just say, well, we have standards for water dams, and we'll use those same standards. So you see other countries around the world responding to this and trying to keep their communities safe. Um, we just haven't done that. Are there things that we sh- – I mean, I, I know that we've set this up as a debate, but are there things that, I mean, to not to see too much ground, but, like, that you sure. think that we should be – that we could be doing more in terms of, like, some of these, like, groundwork and the, the protection piece of any of this? Like, should are there laws that, you know, you've seen other places adopt that – 
you feel like, oh, yeah, we should probably look into that more before we move forward with this? That's a good question. Uh, so I'd just like to speak briefly to... Uh, Linings? The, yeah, actually. Yeah. In a little I'm way. I'm excited. Because uh, the, the, the PolyMet mine recently entered the next phase of its development. Basically, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency said, hey, EPA, we think that this mine meets the standards for water quality. Uh, we think it's going to protect surface water and groundwater. Um, so I think that... Uh, some of those comments that came in were probably very helpful in uh, determining what standards we should apply, and those standards should meet the, the strictest ones possible. Uh, but I think we're there. I guess that would be my takeaway. Um, so we've talked a lot about uh, the the environmental piece of this, which obviously is is a huge. I mean, that's you know a huge part of the debate. Uh, I want to talk though before we we turn it we we kind of break for the half about some of the economic pieces because that's. That's another very real part of this. One piece I just I wanted to try. I've always tried to wrap my head around, and maybe there's maybe there's agreement or disagreement on this. Is just uh, this notion that okay, uh, there might be some terrible catastrophic thing that could happen. Um, I mean, I I live in the improv comedy world. Terrible catastrophic things happen all the time. Uh, I ended up in this career, uh, so. <laughs> So my question is, like, what should be the safeguards, I guess, for that, right? Like, I've heard some people say, well, you should basically say to companies that want to get into this, you have to have, like, the money set aside in order to, like, clean this whole thing up, if that's even possible, which I realize is another question. But is that sort of where we are? Yeah, Minnesota has that. They have a a belt and suspenders type of uh, financial assurance where they have to provide all this money up front to the state. It's not the entire sum for the eventual... Um, reclamation, but they have to pay that as they go along, as they as they continue to operate. So we have the financial assurance. Uh, I have a bunch of these extra copies of our report. Uh, the the last two thirds of the report are all about the the finance or the so environmental. Glossy. Yeah, isn't it nice? It's nice. It's um, nice. I can't I can't imagine. Yeah. So. But it, it's about the environmental protections in place in order to uh, ensure that mining is done in the most environmentally responsible way possible in Minnesota. Yeah? Okay. So let's talk about environmental pieces. Uh, or sorry, economic pieces. So um, we've been talking about environmental pieces. So economic pieces. So one of the pieces I wanted to, because this has been a point of contention with the report that uh, you and Center of the American Experiment put out is, uh, at the very top, you mentioned sort of job numbers and uh, economic impact. Is that from just this mine, or is it bigger than it? Does it require us to build, like, a, a polymet and polymet's brother and cousin and son and daughter? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's part of it, for sure. So uh, Minnesota has the largest deposits of ilmenite, which is the primary ore mm. for titanium in the, in the country. We have the largest manganese deposits. We may have gold deposits, uh, but we only talk about the, the, the economic benefits of, del- of gosh, I need water. <laughs> I'm going to pull a Marco Rubio here. Yeah, Where's please. Um, but so we looked at three titanium deposits, and we looked at developing the Twin Metals Mine up in northern Minnesota, the Polymet Mine, which is a copper-nickel mine, and the Tamarack deposit, which is owned um, by a smaller mining company, uh, and that's in Tamarack, Minnesota. So we didn't even look at the economic benefits of developing the Masaba mine, which is the largest copper-nickel deposit in the state because there's no publicly available 
numbers for that. So just to try and put a button on that, so for those numbers, and what were those numbers at the top of you? Uh, yeah, uh, $3.7 billion in okay. annual economic output and 8,500 jobs supported. So what do we have to do for that specifically? Is it those projects in yeah, particular? six so projects. Six different projects in yes. that area, yep. right? So is is that I mean because well, we, we've you've largely focused on the environmental piece, which again very but is is there any quibbling about that piece from from your side or well sure I mean so, the, so the basic hey, thank you Cheers. wow it's warm <laughs> um, so the basic problem These here is that clean <laughs> yeah. yeah this this resource has been known about for you know sixty years. And for 60 years, mining companies have sort of shrugged their shoulders at this. And that's because it's very, very low grade. So, so the, the, the ore that Polymet would be looking at is 0.3% copper. It's very hard uh, to make any money doing that. It also makes it much more risky. It makes it much more risky that, that the company will eventually go bankrupt. Isn't it up to them, though, if they're going to like do it, if it's risky, if they want to jump into that risk? I mean, why does that concern us, I guess, if they, if they end up going bankrupt on this like foolhardy like iron ore project? Sure, it, it leaves the state exposed. So just, it, just to talk about you know, some concrete numbers, but the Polymet project, um, if they were to go bankrupt and the state were to have to take it over, the cost to clean it up is $1.1 billion. So you know, compared to our state's budget, that's a pretty large chunk uh, of cash. And so that is the risk, that, that the state would be saddled with this burden that is literally um, – in perpetuity. It never ends. Um, so, you know, Montana just built this water treatment plan to deal with a mining Superfund site there that they will appropriate money for forever. There is no end. Um, so that's the risk. That's a way to create jobs. Just take care of the thing forever. Yeah. Uh, so what I would say, uh, just a couple of things there. Uh, we've known about the oil in North Dakota for a long time. They discovered it in the 1950s. We developed new technology. Market conditions change. All of a sudden, they're producing 1.2 million barrels of oil a day, providing jobs for thousands of people out there. The, the grade of the ore in Minnesota is now competitive throughout the country. I mean, mines all over the country are getting permitted at 0.3% copper. That's kind of the, the world standard because when we were looking at these places in the 1960s, the ore grades were relative to what other projects would yield. But we have increasing demand. China wants more metal. India wants more metal. So we're looking at lower ore grades throughout the world. That's what makes us economically attractive today. I'm and not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna call BS. But I was just in India, and nobody asked me for metal. <laughs> but they probably asked you for your cell phone. Anyway, uh, so. Uh, so okay. Uh, so as I promised, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up, and then in the second half of the show, we open it up for you all to ask questions of this. But I mean, sort of as just a closing thought in this uh, first half that we've talked a lot about. I mean, I asked you at the top if we don't do this, sort of what happens. So if we if we do this, uh, you know, uh, I guess, and and particularly, I would ask you, you know, the folks who are very skeptical of this, like. Yep. Help, help uh, sort of make the case for them, like, why is, why is the benefit worth what, I mean, I'm going to say, are, like, very, like, understandable and, and problematic risks. So help me sort of overcome, like, that. Yeah, absolutely. So the United States has some of the most stringent environmental protections in the world. Minnesota, as a state, has very stringent environmental protections. So no mine since or permitted since 1990 has ended up on the Superfund site. So we've come a long way. We don't play Oregon Trail on floppy disks anymore. And our ability to project risk when it comes to projects 
is a lot better now than it was in the 1950s or 1940s when we were permitting mines to maximize the amount of stuff that we could extract rather than protect the environment. So unless you're Amish or a mime, you're contributing to the uh, demand for these metals and minerals. So let's put our own people to work and let's do it responsibly. And I'm going to ask you sort of a similar wrap-up question for this first half. Uh, So there are these risks. Again, I kind of come back almost to the same thing. Is is there a way to do this? Like, you say yes, you're not 100% anti-mining, so, like, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to get you walking out of here with a brand new mine? (laughs) (laughs) What? You need to do things like have financial assurance that is paid up front. It's not paid as you go. So, that, you know, this scheme that, well, we'll pay you money to cover the damage if we make money to do it, you know, that, that puts us at risk. You need to avoid practices like slurry impoundments. So um, storing billions of gallons of mine waste in liquid form um, and leaving it there, a, 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 a lake you know, the size of New York City Central Park of toxic water held in place 250 feet in the air and left forever is not a sustainable business plan. Um, So, you know, avoid those things and and we'll talk. All right. Well, we have lots more to talk about in the second half of the show. Can we do a big round of applause for both our guests, Isaac Orr, Kevin Lee? They're both amazing. If you have a question, uh, raise your hand and I will... Oh, wow. So fast. Okay. I will... I was just going to... I have to explain... Uh, that I will come towards you with the microphone, and I will give you a sticker uh, for asking a question. Uh, okay, so yes, very quickly, you were so fast. And you're right here in the front. First of all, I'd like to commend the three of you for having really civil discourse. Obviously, you're two. You're two highly intelligent individuals, and it's just really nice to see you agree or, or disagree civilly. <laughs> But my question is regarding the um, sulfuric acid that's in our notes here. And I'm wondering if the polymet mine is unique in the fact that it's potentially producing this sulfuric acid or if, you know, mining in general is always just this risky. Don't all go at once. (laughs) All right. so, yes, polymine has the potential to generate acids. That's part of the, that's part of the game when it comes to copper and nickel. Uh, just geologically, when the... Uh, basically, this formed by a huge... The Duluth complex formed when a huge mass of magma came in contact with another sulfur-rich part of Minnesota. So all of these metals precipitated out preferentially along with the sulfur. So the copper and nickel are attached to the sulfur. What we do is we remove them. Uh, there's a process called, um, what is it, hydrometallurgy that takes the sulfur away from the, the other metals that we want. So you have to treat this differently than an iron ore mine or a sand mine. You can't use the same restrictions or the same regulations because you're dealing with something that's fundamentally chemically different. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's something that's inherent to non-ferrous mining itself. Yeah, so for, for reasons that are frankly beyond me, uh, the metals we're interested in are attached to sulfides. And so when they become exposed to air and water by, you know, digging into the ground, they, that's when they form the sulfuric acid. So, like, you might have heard of the Berkeley Pit in Montana. You know, if you go to Butte, you can pay a couple bucks to see the, the Berkeley Pit, which is a, now a super fun site. Um, that water is acidic enough that when, you know, migrating birds land in it, they, 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 they die. Um, so um, it, is, it is something that's inherent to the process itself. It's, it's part of 
the rock. Yeah, that's just the geochemistry of how copper and nickel like to precipitate in a form that's economical to mine. Did that answer your question? So, okay, we're going to ask another question. Uh, so, do, do you, so my follow-on question is, is there a, is there a safe way to, to deal with this sulfuric acid that's a byproduct? I would argue yes. Uh, I'm sure Kevin's going to have his disagreements. <laughs> Uh, so one of the things about this is when the, when the sulfur oxidizes and becomes exposed to water, that's when you have the pen- potential for acid mine drainage or acid rock drainage, whatever you want to call it. They're pretty much interchangeable. Uh, so ways that you can prevent that are you prevent the, the tailings or the, the waste rock from becoming oxidized, right? So you either put it in a pit and you fill it with water. So I know that sounds counterintuitive, but you line this. It's like a giant swimming pool and the water prevents it from oxidizing. It's kind of like a landfill, uh, where when, once you cap that landfill, the, the stuff in the landfill doesn't decompose because it's an anoxic environment. So that's what you want to do, and the DNR requires the mines to characterize their waste, so they have to determine how much sulfuric acid potential is there for this, and they make you, you know, manage the rocks in a different way based on the acid content or the potential to generate acid. Yeah, so he's, he's certainly right that encapsulating it is the best thing that you can do. So you prevent water from moving through the waste. Um, unfortunately, no mine in Minnesota would do that. Um, Polymet wouldn't do that. Twin Metals wouldn't do that. So that's not something that we do here. Would we do I that? No. See, I don't think you can make that assumption about Twin Metals when they haven't even released their, uh, their draft permit or any of their, their materials. So I think that you're not actually looking at the data. We need to look at the data on this. And I think that we can do that, so do, I would disagree. Would they have to do it, or would it just be up to them to do it, or how, how does that work? In terms of preventing water yeah. from moving through, they'd have to do that. That would be part of the regulation. They wouldn't get that. If they didn't do so that, they would get the permit. <laughs> they don't have to do that. That's, that's not uh, one of the requirements in Minnesota law. Okay, other questions. I'm going uh, to go. Uh, I'm, I'll go right here. You're a season ticket holder, so how I'm surprised that you had that. There hasn't been much conversation about the BWCA, which is um, not just a natural wonder, but also a um, a contributor to our economy. And I don't know. Could you just address the um, both the risks to the BWCA and also what it contributes to the state economically? Sure, I'll take that. Um, so the reason why it hasn't been a part of this conversation is because those projects are much further along in the future. So PolyMed is the one that is closest to fruition. They've put in permit applications that the state is looking at now. Um, Twin Metals is the furthest. Uh, so PolyMed, sorry, just to clarify, is in the Lake Superior watershed. So all the waste, any contaminated water in, uh, from PolyMed would flow into the St. Louis River and then into Lake Superior. Um, the projects that are up near the boundary waters are not quite as further, far along. They're in the exploration stage. Um, yeah, so he's right. There are some business plans that are, um, you know, kind of preliminary at this point, but they are many, many years from, from being, you know, a real project. So that's kind of why at least I haven't talked about it as much because the issue that is presented to Minnesota today is the polymet mine, which is, you know, a, a matter of protecting Lake Superior. Okay, uh, good answer. I'm going to go all the way up to the top, and then I'll work my way back down, because there's somebody who I know who grew up on the Iron Range. Yeah, that's actually part of my common question. Um, so I, I grew up in Grand Rapids, and my dad's family is from Chisholm, and um, so the Iron Range. And if you go up there now, it's 
pretty much ghost towns. There isn't a lot of productivity happening. So my concern is that these 8,500 jobs, okay, great, but how long will they actually be viable? How long will they last? And from the numbers I've seen, it's really just a generation, and then, then what? Yeah, so these are the largest undeveloped deposits of copper and nickel in the world. There are no other deposits that are larger that are not being developed. And there are analysis that say anywhere between like 30 and 50 years of, of mining could happen up there. So I think that that's something to consider for sure. Um, I mean, I don't know of too many businesses that last 50 years anymore. There are some, honestly. Um, but I think that it's important to... Uh, I grew up in a manufacturing town, right? So... Uh, Wapaka, Wisconsin. I grew up on a dairy farm. Uh, the economy is powered by the three F's, which is farming, foundry, and fibs. Um, and if we were in Wisconsin, lock, that lock. would have got a huge laugh because uh, I know you did. I will explain what that is because fibs is just an unflattering acronym we have for people from Illinois. Um, so uh, you need both, right? The... Uh, the, the foundry provides, it's the largest employer in the county. You can be a high school degree and get sixty seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year. That's huge. That's the reason why we have a hospital where my mom works, why we have two car dealerships, and we have a Taco Bell. Oh, my God, was that a big deal when we got a Taco Bell up there? Um, and everybody else kind of looks at that like, oh, well, you eat at Olive Garden. You think that's fancy. Uh, but that was like a real thing for, for that town where somebody can go take their take their kids out to, to dinner on Sunday. So I think that that's, uh, that's a real concern for people on the Iron Range because when you look at the jobs up there, the average wage is $42,000 a year. The average mining wage is 80000 So Hennepin County is 66000 So it's easy to imagine a world where if you don't get outside and talk to normal people outside of the Twin Cities area, uh, it's, uh, it's easy to forget that, you know, the rest of the state isn't doing as well economically. I am. Um, I, I. This is a very serious. I am resenting slightly being called a a, a non-normal person, just being a bisexual improv. Imp- bisexual <laughs> improviser from Minneapolis. Sure. I'm just like anybody else. So, um, but Kevin, I wanted to ask. Uh, this is a piece that I actually really try and grapple with because there is a part of me, I'll be honest, that thinks, okay, maybe you know. I'll, a lot of the state, um, definitely a lot of people here in the Twin Cities might think, oh, this is really problematic. We don't like it. And yet, I have a really hard time then wrapping my head around telling sort of a community, like, we aren't going to let you do this thing that you want to do in your community, right. if that makes sense. So, yeah. uh, how, how, I don't know. How do you think about that? Well, the question for me is, um, you know, how would this happen where, in a way that we don't go down the path of places like Butte, Montana, which was once, you know, it's called the richest hill in the world. Uh, now it's desolate. Uh, or Appalachia, which has billions of dollars in, in resources and the, and the communities suffer. So, yeah, the, the quality of, this, of these jobs is a very important thing. Um, the reason why th- these jobs are good now is because of unions. Um, and I'll say a couple things about that. Um, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you a story. So the primary uh, investor of Glencore is a company called, sorry, of Polymet is a company called Glencore, which is a very large Swiss, Swiss multinational. Um, so the question to me, they're, they're sort of well-known 
um, for some, frankly, predatory behavior toward workers. And the question the to me... The Swiss are known for being predatory. Um, <laughs> so, see so, World War II. Those <laughs> army knives. So the question to me is, how do we protect Minnesota from... Uh, going down the same path as what Glencore did to Corpus Christi. So there was a plant there. It was an aluminum processing plant. Uh, they, the workers were represented by United Steelworkers, which is um, you know, one of the larger trade unions. Um, they had a dispute with management over their labor contract, and they were locked out for two years, even though they said, we'll continue to work as we negotiate this, and the company refused. They were locked out. Um, at the end of that lockout, uh, the, the company went bankrupt, so a subsidiary of Glencore was the one that went bankrupt. Another subsidiary of Glencore purchased them out of bankruptcy to shed those union contracts, to shed the pensions, to shed all those legacy health care costs, right? Um, that is what led people like the president of United Steelworkers to say, Glencore destroys communities. So that is the part that concerns me, that we can't just, these blanket statements about jobs, jobs, jobs are meaningless unless you take those types of factors into account. Isaac, uh, Isaac, why is Glencore amazing? <laughs> well, they're from Switzerland. It's like yeah. very nice. The chocolate is impeccable. Um, but the thing about it is we had rallies up in uh, Hibbing and Duluth last week, and we went up there and we talked to about 60 people in Hibbing. We filled the, uh, the theater for the memorial um, building up there, and we had a lot of union members there who were supportive of mining. So I think that, you know, when the choice is no job or this job in copper-nickel mining, I think they're going to choose job in copper-nickel mining over unemployment or, you know, these guys are, you know, teamsters. They're not going to scoop your ice cream when you go up there on vacation. I mean, that's just not who they are. Like, my dad is a farmer, super stubborn, eats butter on everything, uh, donuts, hard-boiled eggs. I mean, he, He's got a problem, but um, <laughs> but there's a certain temperament of person who's not going to be your uh, your guide through the boundary waters in a canoe, and those people need jobs too. Okay, uh, there's definitely more hands that I'm not. Where was the hand that was up in this area here? Huh? No? No? Yes? Did you? Okay, it got asked already. Yeah, good. All right, other other hands. Then I'll come around. Uh, my question is basically for Isaac. Um, we assume that the corporation isn't in the business. Uh, it, it's not a purely philanthropic uh, organization. They're not doing it to create jobs for other people. There's probably a profit in there. And is the profit staying in Minnesota? Or are they selling off their natural resource to some foreign interest? I don't know. The Swiss. Uh, the Swiss. So, uh, so that really depends on... A multitude of local factors. Uh, when the Flambeau mine was mined, there was a lot of opposition to building value-added facilities, so they shipped most of the ore to Canada for processing. They shipped it overseas to Canada. And I think that that would happen a lot in Minnesota, a lot of the processing. What's that? Where'd the money go? Do we... The, he's asking where the money... Where did the money go? Where's the money? Yeah. Um, I guess, can you clarify your question a little bit? Yeah, I, come back. I think I have one beer and I start to, you know, feel it, so... Um, <laughs> I know, right? Well, it sounds, it sounds like you're talking about creating annual salaries of about $15 million. Yeah, $635 million job, or dollars in annual wages. Over what time period? Uh, the, the duration of the mining. Uh, that's annual. Okay, and what's the, what's the profit expected? 
over that same period? So, I mean, that's going to vary by project. Uh, we didn't look at the co- or corporate profits. Uh, we just looked at, we put it all into a software called Implan, which is the standard software that's used by economists to calculate what the tax revenue is going to be, what the jobs are going to be, and what that overall input is going to be for the economy. So the state of Minnesota is going to get $3.7 billion in GDP added to the economy as a result of this mining. Well, okay, so... uh, so the corporation didn't figure out if they'd make money? Well, well I mean, obviously they did. Otherwise, they wouldn't be proposing these mines. Okay. So, um, yeah, and you had no idea how much that is? I mean, that wasn't something that we were looking at in terms of, you know, can we do this responsibly and what's the mineral resource? That was the main focus of our report. Okay. Uh, so there was another hand over on this side with somebody who already has a sticker. I, thank you. I mm. love my sticker. Um, yes, uh, we have very few uh, wilderness areas left in this country, and no one has talked about the impact on the wildlife up there in Superior and the wilderness, Boundary Waters Wilderness Area, that's going to be polluting for a very, very long time. So after 30 years and 50 years when these mines are done, the water is gone, and if you don't do that, the water is there, and it's a sustainable uh, economy. So would you please talk about the impact on wildlife? So I guess I disagree with the premise that these mines will necessarily pollute. The MPCA came out and said that the polymet mine isn't going to be contributing to pollutants. There was like a six, it was table six in their, their water permits that they sent to the EPA that said there would be adding to the discharge, and it was all below the levels that were acceptable by federal law. So um, I, I disagree uh, that it is going to necessarily pollute the water, um, so I don't, I don't necessarily see what the problem is. <laughs> well, let, 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 just, I, I mean, go ahead. Just put, no, I just, yeah. I, I just don't quite know where to start. Um. <laughs> well... We'll start at the beginning. <laughs> Just go ahead. Right. So, so the, the plan that the PCA has sort of said is A-OK is to dig a French drain around the waste pile. Is this whole thing um, European? What is happening? I know, right? I know. Um, and, and pump all the water out. And so you know, what these documents say is uh, literally they will capture 100% of the water. So the, the waste that's there right now is sort of designed to leak. It, it leaks about 2 million gallons uh, a day. And they say, we will collect and treat 100% of that. Um, And I'll just, you know, there are many, many people who are skeptical of that. Many of them with uh, many, you know, Ds behind their name and uh, engineers, hydrologists, uh, that all think that that is a tad optimistic. So, okay, so, uh, again, I, I was worried when we started this uh, show that we were going to sort of talk in two different Directions, which I don't think entirely happened, but I mean, again, it, it seems like uh, if you're both in a place where you say there is a potential benefit to mining. It's a matter of trying to weigh uh, the risks and uh, do it in a way, as you keep talking about, that is sort of responsible and uh, and environmentally protective or whatnot. So again, uh, I don't know. This is like the son of the minister in me. I want to bring us together uh, and find some way to break bread. Uh, but uh, And maybe it's only God that can do it. But... Um, <clears throat> So, but I am trying to figure out, so, uh, again, uh, if we're thinking about 
we're trying to figure out a way to to do the things that will be beneficial and positive about this. I, I'll go back to the question that you said uh, in the first half was was a good question. Are there places you know you've you've put out this report, you've been talking to people, you've been having conversations like this where you're like, you know what, I've heard this and like that is actually a good thing. Like you know what, that is probably somewhere where maybe we could do a little more as a state. We could like pass this law. We could push a little bit farther in terms of like making sure the protections are there uh, so that people like Kevin are more comfortable with some of these proposals. Yeah, sure. I think that when we're talking about the tailings dams and those sorts of things, it makes sense to reinforce them with uh, additional barricades along the base of the structure. That's pretty standard. That's in the polymet permit. So I think that we do need to make sure that we're doing uh, all that we can to prevent those sorts of disasters. But this is also widely used at mines throughout the country. So when we look at two examples, one in Brazil and one in Canada, that's not representative of all the mining that's happening in North America. So I think that that's an important distinction to make. And I'll – well, go ahead. Did you want to respond to that or – Oh, uh, well, just that it is representative. So, I mean, the, the, the central problem of mining today is that those catastrophes are happening more and more often. And it's because these mines are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that is exactly uh, the risk. So, so are those newly permitted or are those ones that are legacy mines? Because we have a lot of problems with legacy mines. It's the most polluting industry that we had. But those were permitted in the 1800s. Since 1990, we've come a long way in preventing that. So I think that that's an important thing to remember, that this isn't like your grandpappy's mine where he's coming out of the shaft with his donkey and a mine cart. Is that true? I'm, that's a, uh, as as fun as that it's image Prospector is. Prospector right. Pete um, from Toy Story like, Three. Yeah. No, it's just. It's, 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 is that true? That particular point about there's been no mine since that's been permitted since 1990. Is that true? That I don't even ended, know that, that, that have ended up that have ended up as a super fun site. Right, because they, uh, they none of them have closed. You know, I mean, what the, all of those mines that have opened since that point are either still in operation, and at the points where they go bankrupt and the state takes over them, that's when they become Superfund sites. So you're saying that, well, they haven't become a Superfund site yet, so everything's hunky-dory. Um, so it's just it's a matter of timing. Oh, so which will be the first one to become a Superfund site? Oh, uh, you know, it just depends on which mine is most economically fragile. So, uh, you know... I mean, frankly, Polymet would be a pretty good candidate. Uh, they, you know, for years thought that they would make 30% on their, on their money, right? That's the sort of key metric when they're trying to sell their mind to someone. Um, the latest numbers say it's down to 10%, you know. So, Which uh, is better than those... the stock market over the long haul. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the thing 7%. is, it is much better than the stock market. The thing is that uh, if you're a mine investor... Um, you have about a one-third chance that your investment will disappear. Um, that's how much is written off every year. And so because of that, they require a much higher return on their investment. So a typical mine would be about 20 to 30%. Um, and so when you have something half of that, it has a very, very high risk of going under, becoming a Superfund site, becoming a public liability that we pay for. Forever. If I can just add a, a, a question, which is if – if these mines are already very sort of like a uh, tipping point, whether they're profitable or not, the other sort of regulations and pieces you want to put in, does that make it that they will necessarily not ever be economically viable? 
it, it all depends on what kind of time frame you're looking at. So yeah, there are some technologies that will prevent pollution that require a little bit of investment up front. If you're looking at it over the, the course of you know, the next 200 years, which is what, they're, what Polymet looks at when they look at their finances, um, it ends up being much cheaper. So like the business plan for Polymet would treat water at closure. You know, the, the mine would operate for 20 years, and then they'd close, and they'd have to pay about $6 million a year to treat that water. So there are technologies that would pr- basically destroy, not destroy, I'm not using the right word, they would avoid that uh, cost. And so you, it's a matter of if you're able to pay the money up front, you avoid that cost down the road. But that's not the way mine investors look at this thing. They look at the here and now, and they're frankly not willing to make that investment what is that up front. In, what is that technology? Uh, it's called filtered tailings. It's called dry stacking. It's, it's, a, it's a number of things. It all has to do with getting the water out of the waste. So when Mount Polly uh, happened, this was the mine that collapsed in uh, the dam, rather, that collapsed in British Columbia. Um, They had an expert panel report that basically said, you know, what went wrong here and how can we avoid it in the future? And the recommendation was you can't store water with mine waste anymore. It's just too risky. Water will always win. You can't, you know, hope to contain billions of gallons of water and leave it there and, and just assume that it'll stay. Um, so that was the recommendation. So there's a variety of storage technologies, all based around the idea of getting some of that water out. Isaac, you have a geology degree. Does water always win? Uh, well, I minored in geology with... Oh, uh, minor. Never mind. I, I want to set uh, the record straight. That's our show. But no, I took hydrogeology. I took sedimentology or stratigraphy and geomorphology and other classes like that. But... I'm not saying that I'm out there doing these tests, yeah. right? So um, there are a lot of site-specific things that you need to take into account, and we have structural engineers that are really good at their jobs. So I think that uh, if Mount Polly had been reinforced the way that the regulations that were already on the books were written, we wouldn't have had that disaster. So, um, yeah. I, so, okay. So sort of, uh, again, I'm gonna, uh, last question I'll ask you both, uh, which is... I feel like I've asked you this in one way or another already, but I'll start with you. We're talking about balancing risk and potential benefit. Is there a place where the risk is too much for you? You know, some folks in the audience brought up this idea of uh, the the boundary waters and some of those things, and and you've talked about, oh, well, we're going to mine somewhere. I can imagine somebody saying, yeah, we might mine somewhere. The boundary waters or somewhere like that is so sort of pristine and special, like, it's, that's just not worth the risk. Like, I would, don't want to do it there. Is there some element of, does, is, do you get to that point ever? So, the, yeah, I do. Um, the thing about the, the boundary waters is it's not happening in the boundary waters. It's happening outside of the watershed. Well, not outside of the watershed. It's in the watershed, not in the boundary waters. Um, but this is an underground mine as well, so that has an entirely different risk profile than a surface mine. So I think that that's something that we'll need to evaluate on a case-by-case basis. And if the MDNR comes out and says, hey, we don't think we can do this responsibly, you've got to go back to the drawing board and figure out a system that does work. And I think that that's the necessary part of regulators. And... Again, I, I don't know. There's a there's a piece of this, you know, uh, uh, from the conservative center of the American experiment saying, trust the government regulators. Don't you trust the government regulators? Well, they're scientists, so I'm, I'm more okay with it. There's, there's plenty of uh, 
super smart people there, but they only have the tools that we give them as a society. So the last, you know, our that's true for most of us. Yeah, yeah. So our our non-ferrous laws were passed in 1969. Um, the last time we gave any guidance at all to the agencies about how to regulate this industry was in 1991. They've never been used, um, and so what we're doing now is setting the precedent with, for some an activity that may occur for centuries. Um, so it's all about giving them the tools that they need um, to protect Minnesotans from, you know, pollution to clean water and, and having a public liability that extends forever. Okay, I tried to bring this all together and, and make everybody uh, get along, and no amount of beer has helped. So I'll just end with, so, so just give, so we started with, what if um, we, we don't do the thing that you wanted, like what happened? So I'll just give you, I don't normally do this, but just give us a closing statement, like if, if we were to just follow your dream, your vision, your 48-page uh, glossy paper, uh, what sure. would happen? What, what would, why should we want that? Uh, we should want that because we can we can develop these resources in a way that's responsible. So that allows us to have the materials that we want. It allows us to employ our own people instead of importing it from some other country like Russia, China, Chile. Um, so why wouldn't we do it? This is a win-win opportunity, and I think we need to take it. No, that's good. Yay, yay, good. That was a good closing argument. It was very succinct. If nothing else, give him style points. Like, that was, yeah, very good. Marco Rubio couldn't do it that quickly. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, th- this, is, this is sort of a conundrum that we face, which is that um, we use these metals. We will continue to use them. They're also insanely risky to get. And so the question is, how can we do this without it being a burden on future generations. And so rather than make these generalities about, you know, 11 billion jobs, we look at each project and say, you know, ask questions like, will it protect uh, the local water resources? Will it protect downstream communities from the catastrophic risk of tailings dam collapse? Uh, will it protect future taxpayers from having to bear a public liability? And if the project can't answer those questions very well, we advocate for changes in the project. Um, that, to us, is a very sensible way of approaching this, this very, very difficult problem, which is that, um, you know, this industry is important. It is also very, very risky and has a, and has a very demonstrated pattern of, this is not an exaggeration, literally destroying communities. How do we prevent Minnesota from not going down, how do we prevent Minnesota from going down that same path? Okay, on that note, a big round of applause for both of our wonderful guests for being absolutely, I want to, can we do it? Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.